plot is like a soap opera. It's like a telenovela or something. In some ways, it could almost be an Almodovar film or something. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today we're going to talk about Rachel Ingalls' 1982 novella, Mrs. Caliban, with Ling Ma, the 2023 recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction. Ling Ma is the author of the novel Severance and the recently published and highly acclaimed short story collection, Bliss Montage. I feel like there's certain categories of writers that you admire who do things that you couldn't conceive of or you couldn't really do yourself. And then there are writers where when you read them, it's almost kind, it feels almost familial in the sense that you understand what choices they're making and you understand why they're making those choices in the story. I feel that way when I read Shirley Jackson, for instance, like her eye for domestic detail and this desire for escape. And I also felt that way when I first read Mrs. Caliban. And when I read some of the other stories by Rachel Ingalls as well, many of the books are out of print, but there was this Grey Wolf edition of some of her short stories. I think it was called Times Like These. And so I've read a few other stories that I could get my hands on, often from out of print editions. And yeah, there is that sense of you don't choose your family, but I feel like we're on a similar wavelength. I have to say, years before I read Mrs. Caliban, I'd written this short story called Yeti Lovemaking that was also about grief and interspecies coupling. (laughs) Obviously, Mrs. Caliban is like a million times superior to that, but I feel (laughs) like somehow we were on some kind of, you know, tuning into the same frequency. But yeah, it felt familiar, I guess I would say, when I first read it. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the story for people who haven't read the book before? What's the basic story of the novel? Well, I I will give you like a practical description, but I wanted to read a paragraph from this jacket copy. I have, it's a first edition from Harvard Common Press. And this is a, I don't know, I just think it's a funny description of this story. The jacket copy reads in part, Mrs. Caliban cannot properly be praised without giving away what the new statesman said can only be described as a literary shock. However, of this, her latest novel, it can truthfully be said that it has in it all the elements required for a late-night TV horror movie. Unnatural sex, a demon lover, a King Kong aspect, a suspenseful car chase ending in a fatal car crash, a hint of the jasmine of Madame Butterfly, and even an ozone-like whiff of E.T. Almost as truthfully, it can be said that Mrs. Caliban is just a short book on how to keep house for a monster. What was that that again? The whiff of Madame... What was the uh, Madame Butterfly? A hint of the jasmine of Madame Butterfly. And even an ozone-like whiff of E.T. <laughs> wow. The hint of the jasmine of Adam Butterfly. I feel like that is just a phrase that is waiting to be picked apart. <laughs> that, that's, the very, that's the more vague and tonal sort of description. But the more practical description is it's a novel 
maybe novella you could say about this housewife named Dorothy who's lost her child years ago and she seems a little frozen in her life and in her marriage and then one one day this frogman <laughs> escapes from the nearby institute and seeks refuge in her house his name is Larry and she keeps him secret from everyone else secret from her husband he's definitely a man sort of more or less and they have this kind of love affair and she tries to help him plot his escape back into the ocean and i think one of the pleasures of this book is seeing larry learn about society about customs and it's notable that dorothy is trying to teach him and lead him through the world much in the way that you would with a child. Yeah, one of the things that struck me about it, the conversations between the two of them is she's teaching him, but she's also feeling her way through these, what I consider to be pretty complicated, like moral and ethical questions that you know are externalized in these conversations, but they're also part of the structure of the story that get where you just have these layers and layers of moral complication as the story kind of reveals itself about like, who's betraying whom and is being betrayed by that person. And I really love the way that the two of them talk about the, these kind of like ethical conundrums. She does talk about them like a child, but it's also like they're very weighty conversations, philosophical conversations almost. Yeah, that's right. There is sort of this sense of like, how are you supposed to live in this world and this sense of maybe alienation in this in the world? I remember one of the opening scenes is at the supermarket where they're being sold cheese by this person dressed up in a costume and there's just the sense of just disgust <laughs> you mentioned as the plot reveals itself like who betrays who what's also interesting i think is that the plot is like a soap opera it's like a telenovela yeah. or something in some ways it reminds me of it could almost be an almodovar film or something <laughs> in the strange way that all of these tragedies pile up it almost feels nightmarish it's almost like being in a dream almost like it just or even like it's a little bit lynchian too how horrific it, the way that they sort of just pile up over the course of the story one of the things that happens early on in the book she's living at home and her husband is going to work every day and they've had a child die in the past she's recently had a miscarriage so she's you know really filled with grief and at one point just prior to Larry's appearance, or as he's called by the people at the Institute, Aquarius the Monster Man. Uh, <laughs> I love that he couldn't pronounce Aquarius, so he refers to himself as Larry. <laughs> Larry, yeah. And she starts hearing these voices coming on the radio in the afternoon. She's listening to the, she'll listen to the news while she's cleaning house. She starts to hear these voices on the radio and they're saying, you know, Dorothy, it's going to be okay. And she'll kind of like look around and she's like, oh, no, no, I'm not going crazy. And then one day she hears the news story about Aquarius, the monster man escaping from the Institute. And so that that leaves this sense of ambiguity that I think hovers over the whole novel about whether or not this is actually happening or if it's part of this fantasy that she's concocted as a way of escaping her life. Well, I remember one of the descriptions when the a sort of news bulletin comes on about this escaped frogman. There is this line that says it 
that when she listened to it, it's, it sounded different. That news bulletin sounded different from the other voices that she had heard on the radio. And it was, I think it was almost trying to make a distinction like, no, this is reality. This is really happening. Yeah, I don't know. I think an, I do feel like an easy interpretation is to say, this is all going on in her mind. But for some reason, that question doesn't really, I think, interest me as much. I think it's more that what I'm interested in more so is sort of this existential portal <laughs> that opens up uh, when Larry enters her life and maybe the possibilities that it gestures to. You have the sense that there's been a sense of deprivation for her for so long and that suddenly there's like this bomb, uh, you know, that's bomb by B-A-L-M <laughs> that's a applied to all of like, you know, the the wounds or something like it was this strange restorative feeling. Yeah, it was, that part of the novel is very convincing. Yeah. And I, she also... She keeps Larry in the room of her dead child, which is set off from the house enough, set off from the kitchen or set off from like the main living area of the house so that her husband doesn't realize this. And some of the great comedy of the book, too, I think, comes from that scenario, too, where Larry discovers that he really likes avocados and he eats bags and bags of avocados. And the moments when she almost gets caught by her husband is because she's coming home with like bags full of avocados and he's like, what are you? Yeah, I love that like mashup. Like there's this cartoonish aspect as well in between like this, like the soap opera element and like the E.T. element or whatever. It's it's really, yeah, it's really fun. Well, there's also, I, I think, you know, with her name, right? I guess there's maybe a Wizard of Oz element to it as well. Oh, how uh, do you mean? Well, Dorothy is her name, right? And so I thought oh. that maybe there was this sense of like, you know, Dorothy going down the imaginary rabbit hole as well. Like, I, I think that would, maybe that harkens back to what I was saying about the ambiguity to it. But that was one of the the big illusions that I was thinking about. Too. So I was thinking Wizard of Oz, like Creature from the Black Lagoon. That mashup quality is really amazing, I think. Yeah, Dorothy really makes me think of like an, it just sounds right for the 1950s housewife. Actually, I don't know if this book is set in the 50s. And I'm not sure if it specifies. It was published in the 80s, but there is this feeling like there is that f nuclear family claustrophobia that I associate with the 50s. I think it's notable that the title, Mrs. Caliban, I, I think it's notable that the book is not called Dorothy, but that it's called Mrs. Caliban because it's technically her name, but it's more like her name as like reference of like her status like her marital status the missus and her husband's surname right it's interesting that it's not that this is called mrs caliban instead of dorothy well did you pick a passage that you were gonna read and talk about yeah well i feel a little bit guilty about the passage i picked because it's actually the one that's right at the very end. So I feel like that's okay. We're we're spoiling all the way to to the okay. finish line here. So <laughs> book. Uh, so maybe readers will have read it. I should say by like. So at towards the very end, there's like a big reveal and deaths that occur, and in this unforeseen incident earlier, 
She had to drop Larry off near the ocean where he would presumably hide. And the plan is she's going to go back and get him. They're supposed to meet up again, so she goes back to the beach. And so this passage is about all of the things that she has to do in light of the tragic, like the practical day-to-day matters she has to do in light of some unforeseen events. And then she tries to get him again. And yeah, it's really at the very end. Dorothy, and oh, and she also tries to have a, get a job as well. Dorothy went for two interviews and was told that they would let her know. She wrote a short letter to her parents and told them to stop worrying because it was beginning to make her worry too. She packed up most of Fred's clothes to send to Suzanne and saved one or two things to give to Mr. Mendoza for his cousin in Chicago who ran the shop. She listened to the radio, but there were no special messages now. She drove down in the evenings to the beach. Sometimes by moonlight and sometimes only by starlight, she stared at the line where the water ran over the sand. He never came. She got out of the car and walked up and down the beach hour after hour. The water ran over the sand, one wave covering another, like the knitting of threads, like the begetting of revenges, betrayals, memories, regrets. And always it made a musical murmuring sound, a language as definite as speech. But he never came. The end. (laughs) Yeah, the end. And that refrain, he never came, actually comes earlier as well, a few a page or so earlier. She keeps ringing that refrain. And I don't know what I find so moving about this. I think it, to me, it's that feeling of when you're in a very rich, meaningful dream or something that seems to hold some kind of answer. And then you wake up and it's closed and you cannot access it again. That, uh, to me, that's the sensation of that, those last passages, that closing of like possibility or reveal or uh, answers or something. And, but what remains is this sort of like searching, this continual sort of sense of lostness being lost and this sort of searching. And I think that's why I found it, find it very moving. I, what was it? I think the first time I read it, it was in 2018. It was when New Directions had reissued this book. And I was reading it on the plane. And then I just started like crying (laughs) on like a four hour flight from Portland back to Chicago. I was just like crying. And then I realized this is ridiculous. And then I try to cry inconspicuously, which was even more, I don't know, more ridiculous. But yeah, that's what I I find the ending very moving. Anyways, I do too. Yeah, that happens to me on planes all the time. By the way, like, like I fly a lot for my job, and I can't tell you how many stupid movies that I've been watching on planes have me just start bawling my eyes out. <laughs> I was once flying back to the states, and I was watching Grumpy Old Men, and I was like crying <laughs> at the end of Grumpy Old Men, completely beside myself. I don't know. There's something about like being up in the air and oxygen or something i don't know what it does, i think but. you're also like room stripped of like context you're away from the people you know nobody knows who you are what you do any of that you're somehow just completely stripped yeah you're disconnected you're not where you were you're not where you're going <laughs> yeah i've had people talk to me about crying on planes a lot so i feel like this is not maybe it's not just me but i was really amazed at how like how much sympathy i felt 
for both of them. You know, she, I think she's really good at drawing these like really rich characters and doing so by like constructing an environment that, you know, is familiar and recognizable and yet not as you would want it to be, right? It's very particular in drawing upon her grief and on his suffering in a way that, that doesn't allow your sense of the place or your familiarity with the place to make you feel comfortable as a reader. You get the sense of maybe estrangement that she has, but also the sense that she has to, feels that she has to pass or passes whatever societal role she's been assigned. And I guess they're similar in that way, her and Larry, and maybe that's forms, you know, the basis of their connection is that they're both, well, she has the past. I guess he can't even be seen. I think for Dorothy, she knows, she always knows there's a distinction between herself and like the fact that she has to pass is always very clear to her and it's very cumbersome. And I think living each day feeling as if you have to pass for something else is very tiring. And and I think that sense of exhaustion is especially prevalent maybe in the earlier part of the novel. What do you think she's passing at? Well, she's passing as what she is, which a woman, I guess not quite a mother, but yeah, <laughs> she's passing as the things that she is. Yeah. 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 There's another great passage early in the book that I underlined as well. That's on a similar line where she's talking to Larry about clothing. And it's just, it's, I love the way that she uses these like really simple sentences to make things unfamiliar for you. And that's the sort of childlike thing. It's almost like a faux naivete or something, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it disarms you by the simplicity of the statement. And then it just undermines you by getting really complex really fast. He says, is the morning a time of festivity? <laughs> just the opposite, she answered, pulling the plug out of the sink. Is the dress you are wearing a garment of celebration? It's just my bathrobe over my nightgown. What I was wearing last night was more for a party, but not formal. It was, well, which do you like better? This. You think it's fancier? More special. And my hair this way? Better this way. Is it because the dress and the hair are long now? And last night, the dress was shorter and the hair was up? I understand now, he said. I like these things unrestricted. It isn't a matter of the rules of clothing. It's a question of freedom. <laughs> to me, it's a habit. Everybody agrees that certain clothes are worn for certain activities. Once the habit is accepted, it means something. And then to break it means something too. For me, clothes aren't necessary. I don't see a meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like how the questions are so simple and his statements at first are so simple, but then there's that sort of little, that burst of insight and complexity when he says, I understand now, I like these things unrestricted. It isn't a matter of the rules of clothing. It's a question of freedom and that, yeah, that perception. I find that very charming. Yeah. I marvel throughout this book at the way that she is able to get at that kind of complexity through just, I mean, it's not complicated prose. It's very simple prose. And it, it is, as you described, I mean, it's almost childlike at various points, the way that she writes. You could really easily see her writing 
young adult fiction or kids fiction even using these types of sentence structures. But yeah, it quickly gets complicated. And, and it, it mirrors the whole way that the story, I think, gets complicated throughout, right? Like there's there's Estelle, that, like Estelle, this best friend who has some kind of weird job, maybe in television or something. They keep referring to her. She's like going to the studio, going to the studio, which I think means a TV studio, but it wasn't quite clear to me. And for most of the book, we're feeling like, yeah, Estelle is her ally. And she feels that way too. And there are moments where you're like, yeah, tell Estelle, you got, you, you, you got to share this with somebody. You need an ally. <laughs> and then suddenly you start going, oh, wait a second. Who was it that the husband had an affair with? And then, you know, and then it was like, why is she arguing with her daughter about this? And then suddenly everything that she thinks she understands about her relationships and the people she loves is undermined by these kind of betrayals. I like that the revelations at the uh, towards the very end just come very, very quickly. It's like one after another after another, and it's so fast-paced. And I feel that there's something with all of these tragedies and betrayals, these revelations piling up so quickly. It feels, yeah, I think earlier I mentioned it feels like a nightmare or a dream. It, there's some, I don't know, that rupture, it almost seems to signal like, oh, this is the end. We're coming to the end of the story or something. I can see in another writer's hands where these revelations are spaced out and a, maybe a slower domestic novel. But I, actually, I think it's more powerful that they come all at once gushing out. Yeah, more forceful that way. Yeah. I struggled a little bit, you know, once they start happening, like once she looks through, she recognizes the voice of her husband and the daughter and yeah. they get out of there and then suddenly they're like why they're they're driving down the highway is the husband chasing them and does she run them off the road intentionally it's this very complicated situation where it's difficult to tell where the agency is or who's doing what and there's that same ambiguity i think accuses the whole novel right from the beginning of where we're not sure if this is real or not right if you wanted to do a reading that started with she made larry up then this is a story about a woman who is deeply, deeply unhappy and unsatisfied with her life, bringing things to a conclusion, right? She's trying, she's inventing a story to sort of like help bring herself out of this situation in which she feels imprisoned. But if it's a real story, if Larry's real, I should say, you know, that shines a completely different light on everything that we're seeing here, right? Because she's protecting Larry and she's also using Larry to comfort her and and Larry has all these other very real meanings for her that have different consequences based on the outcome of the situations that are occurring in the story. He's real, Mike. <laughs> Come on. I don't know, is he? Real. <laughs> I want him to be real. Come back. Has he had enough of people? Yeah. I think it was Plan 9 without her space, you know, where he's like, you people, you stupid humans with your stupid, stupid minds. I need to watch that. I also need to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I think there's some overlap here. Oh, yeah, this is, yeah, this is, yeah, there's definitely a connection between, yeah, <laughs> that has that kind of like romantic creepiness as well. Also, some of the best underwater swimming scenes. Like just these beautiful scenes of this guy. The guy who's playing the creature is like this really muscular, 
probably a professional swimmer of some sort. He's in this outfit. And so him just like moving through the water, all in this really crisp black and white, like beautiful to watch. I need to think more about what these, the, there are these stories of like interspecies coupling that I need to, <laughs> I feel like I need to think about this more, like Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Mrs. Callahan, obviously. I wonder, I don't know. I feel like there could be a lot more to say about, I, I want to, yeah, I want to do like a <laughs> survey of these. A deep dive. Stories. Yeah. It is its own kind of category. And there are tropes yeah. within this type of story that, that we abide by. I mean, if you think about other types of stories like evil twin or like cloning or replicas like they have their own patterns that they follow well let me ask you a question like you wrote a story about having sex with a yeti <laughs> like what was the question you were trying to ask there what were you thinking about well initially i was thinking so i guess in that yeti lovemaking story i it was the probably like the first story i wrote i wrote it before severance where i realized oh, okay i can actually write more in that surreal realm I can maybe introduce the fantastical more in my fiction. So in the story, the narrator is addressing someone, the you, and it's her ex. And I initially thought maybe it's like a story of like a revenge story where she's telling the ex like this amazing, like this revenge sex or this hot sex I've been having with this other person. And I was just thinking, well, we need to make that more extreme in some way. And at the time I had been working at Playboy and we think a lot about like I was just thinking, what is masculinity? What are these archetypes of like, you know, they have these like fashion portfolios of how to dress like Cary Grant, how to dress like Steve McQueen. And I'm thinking, what is like extreme masculinity? Like what if you <laughs> were to amp up that notion? And I just realized it's a autonomous self-governing system and i was thinking about yetis and sasquatch <laughs> and so i was thinking oh that's right so she the revenge fantasy the revenge sex has to be like within this like extreme archetype of masculinity so it has to be like yeti or sasquatch but yeah i think if you follow masculine that notion masculinity to the very end it is like this self-governing loop <laughs> completely autonomous does not need anything else uh assist a closed system i anyways it was just fun to think up of all of these weird causes and effects of yeti sex as she's relating this to her ex well i feel like larry fits that paradigm in a certain sense doesn't he he's described as like almost human except he's got a frog head and but he's a very muscular and you know he stands on two feet and he's strong enough to rip people's intestines out with one with one swipe of his hands you know okay. he's pretty like ripped <laughs> yeah, yeah and there is a line at some point where that said like he aside from like a few differences he was just like any other man like and that he ate like a man on a health kick <laughs> so yeah, I can see that. But I don't Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting if, if he's the fantasy, right? So the husband was at one time like attentive and he's no longer attentive anymore. And so Larry is like 
masculine and attentive, but he's able to sort of fulfill everything that is suddenly absent from her life. He's not desensitized. And I think he, yeah. she needs that to not be desensitized herself, maybe to see the world in a new way or to open up some possibilities. But yeah, I am. It's a great book. I wonder, part of me, I wonder if she could have sustained it longer or what it would look like. Or does it, is this the type of short story that needs to be like exactly this length, you know, quick and then over with? Yeah, I'm not sure. You... All right. So my last question is, you're yeah. recommending this book, like you're, you've got to hand it to somebody, you're telling them to read it. What do you tell this person? I think it's actually a good time to read it when you are feeling sad because I think it makes you feel better. And I, to me, what qualifies as feel good doesn't deny like sadness. In fact, it denies like the full spectrum of emotions to me. And something I like from this book is it captures that feeling of, so when you're in like the grieving process, you're very sensitized to sadness, but at the same time, you're also sensitized to the full spectrum. You're sensitized to pleasure and to the senses a lot more. And so I think this book captures that sensation quite a bit. So I would recommend it for when you're feeling sad and if you're going through some sort of grief. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which are administered by Yale University Library's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library.